On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking trees, as in trees in Hamilton, because the city of Hamilton is trying to plant thousands of new trees all over the city, public and private property. Why? Well, we'll tell you. Uh, We're also going to talk about one of the most unusual things that we're ever going to talk about on this show. There was a funeral in Toronto the other day. How the deceased was presented? you got to stick around and hear this. Oh, and Don Robertson joins us, as he always does on Mondays. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. A couple days ago, I had a uh, very friendly crew from the city of Hamilton come and plant a tree on my front lawn. I knew they were coming, by the way. This was not just a random show up and plant a tree without telling anyone. This was a planned ahead thing. But nonetheless, they had come and put this tree in, and it was for free, as far as I know. Maybe it'll show up on my taxes. But far as I know, it was it was for free as part of a project the city is doing. So why would they be doing free trees for people? Well, the city of Hamilton is in the process of trying to build up its number of trees, quite simply, uh, by planting something like 15,000 new trees throughout the city this year. And that's just on city land. The private property ones, there's hundreds of those that are also going to be planted. Why are we doing all this? Well, let me bring in Sam Scarlett. He is the city of Hamilton's forestry manager, which I'm guessing a lot of people had no idea we have such a thing, but yes, we do. And Sam is that guy. Sam, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Good evening, Scott. How are you? I'm excellent. Thanks for taking the time today. Um, Do we have a tree shortage in the city of Hamilton? So there has been a couple of incidences over about the last 10 years which have severely impacted the urban tree canopy in Hamilton. One of those was the emerald ash borer infestation, which we're currently in year 9 of 10, where the city was originally planned to remove about 23,000 ash trees, and um, the city had committed to replacing those one for one, so that would be 23,000 street trees planted in replacement. That estimate has now increased to about 26,000 trees, so hopefully by the end of next year, and we're on target for, we will uh, reach 26,000 removals and 26,000 replacements. Other Now, I, I know there's an answer for this, and I could probably guess at it, but I'll let the expert answer this one. Other than for simple aesthetics, what is the reason we want to do this? Is, is there a great reason why we would do this? Yes, there's a lot of research which... Um, indicates cities um, function a lot better and more efficiently when the urban canopy is over 30 percent so in the recent strategy there's a there's an approved draft strategy urban forest strategy out now and it will be coming back to council in the next uh, few months for the for the final version which is pegging the uh, the goal for the city at 30 percent canopy coverage in a recent study, uh, the city of Hamilton was at about 21, just over 21% canopy coverage. Um, this is unchanged from a study which was done about 12 years ago, which was also just under 22%. Um, although and how do we measure that, Sam? How do we measure a canopy? Is that by house or is that by street? Or what? Per- what is that a percentage of? So that's just a percentage of the ground looking from an aerial photo from above. Percentage oh, okay. of the ground, which has tree canopy over it. So we use um, a multitude of techniques to establish that, but it's really just looking at those aerial photographs 
in seeing if there's a tree canopy present and calculating that against the total area of the, the total urban area of the city. You know, I mean, when you say it that way, though, it, I mean, the, this would be a very um, aggressive goal because, I mean, if you are looking at a, a, a property with a house on it, the house is obviously not going to have a tree necessarily on top of it. And you're not necessarily going to have one in the backyard or not necessarily in the front. I mean, it, it becomes a, a challenge, I would think, to try and reach that 30% just by pure space. Yeah, yeah you're right, Scott. It, it is a huge challenge. Um, the We know that approximately 60% of the existing canopy is on private property and 40% of it is on city-owned land. So it's going to be an effort on the private property side as well as on city property to, to boost that canopy across the city. Looking at larger cities who have had these programs in place for a long time, such as Mississauga, Oakville and Toronto, they put a lot of effort in to planting, planting tens and hundreds of thousands of trees. And it's a very incremental change. You you literally have to wait for the trees to grow. Sure. You used a word a moment ago that I found fascinating, and I don't know if it was just, a, a, if it may not have been the exact word, or if it is, I find it really interesting. You said cities function more efficiently with a higher canopy. Why would that be? Well, you get, there's a lot of benefits to having to trees evenly distributed amongst the, the urban area. You get air and water filtration, there's carbon storage, there's, stormwater runoff reduction, which which is important. Um, there's also temperature moderation in those peak summer days where we have those high, high temperatures. Um, and it also supports the, the local biodiversity as well, having an even canopy across the city. Is it costly to do this? I, I mean, I, I, I don't know what a, a sapling, when they put the one in our front yard the other day, it's a nice tree, it's a small tree, but I mean, are those, are those expensive to do or is it reasonably inexpensive? So we deploy a range of trees. So if we're planting a large naturalized area, we're obviously going to be using small, relatively inexpensive trees. Whereas if we're planting in parks, Gage Park, for example, or on your boulevard, we will plant a, a larger tree, what we call a 50 or a 70 mil um, tree. So the the trees are big enough to survive, but not too big that we can't handle them and plant a, and plant them in that location. So it is a balance, and we plant a range of trees across the city. But in those streets and parks, we, they're the largest trees that we plant. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sam, we've been talking up until now, I think mostly about the private or part of the public property situation. What about private property? When is there any obligation on, let's say, a builder? Because we know there are subdivisions popping up. Do builders under any bylaws have to plant a tree on a lot when they finish a home? Yeah, that's a good question, Scott. Um, in all new developments, so the large-scale development areas and subdivisions in Hamilton, every uh, regular lot will have a tree planted in front of it, if, if it can allow it with um, street signs and lights and, and stop signs and things like that, and also vision for the for the roadway. Uh, and if it's a corner lot, it'll get three trees. On smaller developments, during the plan review stages, and when, when um, developers and builders apply for permits to the city, at that point we review those plans. And, and identify how many trees have to be planted as part of that development. But, okay, but once a tree is on someone's property, it's on private property, is there anything that prevents someone from chopping that tree down? 
So there are some legacy private tree bylaws in the city of Hamilton. Ancaster is a prime example of that. There is a private tree bylaw in Ancaster, Dundas, and a small area of Stony Creek. The rest of the city does not have a private tree bylaw. Which means, which means what? If I if I have a a property and I have a tree that's looking sickly or that's just starting to tilt or lean or get too big, can I? Under that bylaw, do I have to get permission from the city to chop it down, or could I say, no, it just has to go, it's going to damage my house? Yeah, so there's a process. You can contact the city, and then um, someone will come out and review that tree. And if it is a hazard and the time is essential, then that tree will get the approval to be removed. But if there are other categories or other reasons why a tree in private area and those private tree bylaw zones within the city, which may result in a tree being removed if it's too close to a structure, if it's impeding other issues, utilities and things like that. So as I said off the top, we had the the people from the city come by several weeks ago to ask if we wanted a tree to be put on our property. We had one and it had gotten sick. We had to cut it down. Uh, We said, sure. What kind of, so we were happy to have the tree being put here, but what kind of take up are you getting from homeowners? Are, Are most people who are offered this saying, absolutely. Or is it, a, is it a sales job to have to get people to take a tree? So uh, trees that are removed um, from the road allowance that through maintenance activities, which it sounds like you're describing, uh, we do replace those trees. It might not be in the exact same location, but we will replace that tree as close to the removal site as we can. Um, you're right, it is a bit of a sales job in some instances. Um, but... By and large, residents do appreciate trees, and they, and they do want them back adjacent to their property. Because there's a lot of there's also a lot of research to show that the more trees an area has, the higher the value of the property are, and it's more desirable for for residents of that area. For for mentioning for that, for, for reasons that I've mentioned as well. Do do people get a choice of what they get, or does the city just show up and plant one? So the city has will engage residents, um, and and. We have approximately 60 trees, different species of trees that we plant, and we have so many to allow diversity across the city. So we're not exposed to certain pests and diseases, which we've learned from the emerald ash borer example um, in the past. So we will engage with the residents um, and and give them and offer them different trees of what they look like, and, and often people really really respond to that and they really like to be able to choose which um, tree they will exist out the front of their property for for a long time. Before I let you go, where in the city, I'm imagining as I picture sort of driving around the city, the downtown seems, the lower city seems to have in my mind anyway, a lot of trees. Is that an area that doesn't need a lot of work? Is Is there a spot that really is barren and you're really concentrating on? Yeah, so for the last few years, we really have been targeting downtown, lower city, so wards two, three, four. Really? Um, have have been, um, you know, there, there's some older trees, which they do require removal once they become hazardous. But there's also, it's based on land use as well. So there's large industrial and commercial areas there, which don't support a lot of canopy. So we're really trying hard to, to get tree canopy, into new trees into that area. From a recent study as well, we've seen that wards seven and eight up on the mountain also have low canopy as well. So that's an area of focus for us is to try and get trees back into these locations to lift that um, canopy coverage. But again, it all takes time. We really have to, we can plant lots of trees, but we have to give them time to grow. 
I must say, Sam, I appreciate the time. And I had, as I say, until the other day, I had no idea the city had a forestry manager. Uh, yeah, do you ever, does anyone ever say that to you? We have a forestry manager for the city? Um, no, quite a few people find contact me. So, um, so I, oh, well, no, there we, you go. No, there you go. I, 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 you know, it's one of those jobs that I, I guess you never think of until you need it. And then you go, wow, good, good that we have that. But as I say, I, I appreciate you taking some time and explaining this today. It's a great program. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Uh, as I say, may, maybe I'm alone. I, I had no idea that we had a forestry manager. Perhaps I should have thought of that. I mean, we do have trees. We have a big city, but there you go. Another job that we have that I did not know about. Um, so if someone comes knocking on your door and says, we want to plant a tree, they're probably not a scam artist. Just, you know, another thing to consider. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Brent Noll McPherson died the other day. You may not know the name. Uh, he was a drummer, a Canadian Guyanese drummer from Guyana originally, who had lived in this country for years, went by the name Bonnie Brent or even Cabbage, that was one of his nicknames. Uh, cancer finally took him at 73 the other day. And if you read the story of his life, he had a pretty remarkable life, as I say, as a musician. His death, however, may have got him more attention than his life ever did. Because during the visitation at the funeral home for Cabbage, he wasn't laid in a coffin. He wasn't with a lid open or lid closed or anything like that. He wasn't cremated. And then he was posed in a bright yellow tracksuit at his drum kit, wearing a hat, wearing sunglasses. It was something that is called staged visitation. It may have been the first of its kind in Canada. It has happened elsewhere We've seen it elsewhere, but it's the probably the first of its kind in Canada. Uh, I'm guessing it's not going to be the last. Luan Jones is the owner of the Covenant Funeral Home in Scarborough. She joins us now. Luan, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. You're most welcome. Good evening to you all. Uh, this, I'm betting that, well, I, I don't want to guess, but I mean, you've had your business for a while. I'm betting you've never had as much attention for anybody who's ever been in your place than for this. No, we haven't. <laughs> it's, it's been overwhelming. It, it's humbling and, and it's such a proud moment. Okay, so let, let's go back for a second here because when the family comes to you and they says, "Okay, uh, cab," we'll call him Cabbage. I mean, that was his name when he yeah, when they cabbage, say, "We yeah. okay," when they say he's passed away, we would like you to do this. Do you say to them, "Yeah, sure, no problem. That's we can do that," or do you have to go and check the rules of funeral directing to see if this is even allowed in this country? Well, honestly, we 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 didn't check. It was done on a whim um, and just a little about myself and, and Cabbage. Um, I've known him for some time. Um, one of my father's friends, um, well-known in the community. So we've, we've maintained that relationship the years. One of my biggest promoters um, within the community. And um, we're, we were constantly connecting. And the last days, I, I was actually away in Philadelphia. I was filming a movie um and he had called and we had chatted and i and prior to me leaving for philly um he was actually given the diagnosis that he would have only had a few days and that was back in november the initial trip and i went and i saw him before he's like sis you have to come and see me and i went over there and we chatted 
And throughout those months, we did have really, really good conversation. And the last conversation, he was just in hospital and had major surgery in his back. They actually um, had to remove some things in his back, and he was he was there for a while. But conversation was really, really good. So we had spoken, um, you know, about things that we would like to do. And in the event something happened, how I would want to have his visitation done. And he was okay, specifically not sitting at a drum, but um, him being very prominent within the community, I knew it was going to be or could have been a massive turnout, you know, barring COVID. So we wanted to do things differently and, and keep his legacy going on. So could theoretically, and again, I don't know if there are or are not rules. Nobody showed up and arrested you or anything. So I'm assuming it's going to be fine because there was tons of attention to this. So it's not been an issue. Theoretically, could someone be posed in almost any position, you know, something that represented them in life? Is it it theoretical that your imagination could run wild and you could do almost anything? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I saw my first, Staging, I actually saw, I, I believe it was based in Puerto Rico, and a gentleman was actually sitting cross-legged um, at his own visitation, and that's who he was, and, and that's what his family had wanted for him. And for me, you know, challenges, yes, like I'm, I'm up to any challenge, mm. and that was top of my bucket list, just to have that opportunity for people to see my skill. Um, in terms of my embalming preparations, I get a lot of praises. Um, even until this afternoon, one of my clients said, Luann, you make dead people look really, really good. Well, and... oh, look, Luann, you better, if you're going to do something like this, and, and I mean, compliment to you, if you're going to do something like this, you'd better, because this could be, you know, this could be horrible if you did a bad job, but not you, if, if, if a funeral director did a poor Absolutely. job. This could be Absolutely. horrible. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's a matter of confidence and skill, um, and a lot of detail was taken, a lot of thought. Um, For myself personally, not too much thought because in my head it was already set out in terms of what I'd want to do. And and with my team, um, you know, we we executed it flawlessly, Mm. like flawlessly, and it was remarkable um, that people actually called. There was no movement. Um, there wasn't anything of the, of the sort. It was just, it was just as perfect as perfect could be. Do you know what the, um, I I understand that this is not common, but let's say more common in some of the islands. And I've, I've seen some things from the States, uh, in the Southern States, especially where this has happened. Is there a cultural relevance to this or is it merely people that have decided, you know, this is how I'd like to be remembered? It's, it's not a cultural thing. Um, you know, it's, 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 it is just the way people want to be remembered or people want their family to be remembered. Um, in scrolling through what we call extreme embalming, um, there was a man who wanted to be buried on his Harley. And that was a little bit different because he was actually buried sitting, you know, upright on his Harley. I saw that photo. Yeah, I saw that photo. I know I saw the photo of that when that happened. Yes. Um, There's, there've been other ones. Um, My funeral colleagues, they've done um, in the U S they've done 
sitting up in vehicles. Um, there, there have been people that have actually been buried in their vehicles. Um, and again, upright. Now that's a little bit extreme, but that's the way that the family wanted that person to, to be laid to rest. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to ask this very carefully because I don't want to be asking something that is um, inappropriate or anything like that. But when I hear this, do you have to treat a body as a funeral director differently if you're going to do something like this with the with the preparation? Or is it exactly the same, just different in the way we set them up? It was exactly the same um, in terms of chemicals. I little I used a little bit more than than I would normally use, um, but in terms of um, the the total embalming preparation, it was exactly the same. And again, uh, it could be a little uncomfortable or awkward to ask this question, but the one thing that you could not have happen, or else you would never have anybody do this ever again, is for him to honestly fall over or something. How do you make sure that? It, he still stayed in place while everyone was coming in and that absolutely nothing went wrong. He was, he was literally propped and well supported. Did you have to talk to anybody? You mentioned that this has happened. These kind of displays have happened in the States. Did you, do you talk to anybody who's done this before to find out what they did or is it just you're sure you can do this? So we're just going to do it. It was, it was, no, I didn't. I didn't consult anybody. Um, again, with myself and my team, um, we basically discussed it and said, "Look, this is what I'm planning on doing. How are we going to make this work?" So, between the three of us, we were very, very creative. And again, we we made sure that he was well secure and and it worked. What's the reaction so, been? So in I mean, a sense, I'll... it was well staged. Well, no, for sure. I mean, and as I say, it, you couldn't dare have it not be. I mean, it would have been, it would have been horrible. But what's the reaction been? Because I've seen online, I've seen everything from this was terrific and this was beautiful and this was moving to people who were, you know, slightly more creeped out by the idea. What have yeah. you heard? <laughs> I've I've had um, many comments, um, both positive and negative, and to each their <laughs> own. Um, but again. The, the promise was we were going to go, we were going to make him by vi- in life. We were going to make him go viral. And oh, yeah. <laughs> I was, I was actually true to my word. And yes, you were. I, I entitled um, the, the visitation because it was a live live stream visitation on YouTube. Um, Bunny Brent's last performance. And I had messaged his wife the other day and I said, I know this was going to be his last performance, but it looks like, He's making, it may have been the last performance in Toronto, the way in Kenya right now and, and circulating the world. So he'll be playing a little bit longer. Did, did anybody, Luann, I don't, did everybody know before they came to visitation that this was what was waiting for them? Or did you have anybody walk in and kind of go, uh, whoa, what's going on here? No, we were basically, um, kind of sworn to secrecy within, within our circle. We knew what we were planning, um, his wife, she was, she she had some idea, but didn't know that I'd be able to execute it. Um, but she was still shocked. Like when she came in, she's like, Luann, you actually did this. She's like, Luann, you did it. <laughs> yeah, I'm and laughing. I mean, look, were, it's a funeral. They were in awe. They were amazed. They were speechless. 
because again, he looked exactly like himself. Um, coloring, he just looked so lifelike. And it's funny because um, I had sent some pictures to some people and they're like, okay, Luann, like, you know, what's happening? And my son actually um, recorded me. He's like, we need, we need to do this. And I was like, okay, let's, let's do it. Um, so I, I did the recording um, sitting beside him and introducing him as our first stage. And I'm hoping this will be our first of many. I've, I've had a number of calls um, for people that are interested in something like this and also people that want to be taught how to do it. And I was laughing because it's just not that it's funny. It's just so unusual. It's so unlike what we're used to seeing. And let me, we got to go, but one more thing. Is there, if somebody spoke to you ahead of time and said, because ideally I think that you would want the person who is going to be staged to be the one to decide this. Nonetheless, um, if someone spoke to you ahead of time, is there anything that would be a step too far that you would say, no, I can't do that. Or if they want their last wishes, sure, I'll do whatever. So I've always said, as long as it's legal, um, we're not infringing on any laws or, you know, things that, aren't ethical, we can do it. If you tell me what you want done, we will make it happen. It is, uh, it is a remarkable piece of work. I will tell you that you, uh, he, he absolutely does look very lifelike in the picture that I'm looking at right now on my computer screen. Uh, mm-hmm. I would encourage everyone to go look it up and then you know what? Everyone else can decide what they think. I think it's, I think it's eye opening to be sure Luann. And I think you did a great job. Um, <laughs> and, and I am, his eyes, well, actually for the actual visitation, we had two sets of glasses. We had his sunglasses and we had his regular reading glasses. So in actual fact, for his visitation, his eyes were open um, with his glasses. And then for his final visitation, which was the day of the service, he was living in the casket, um, eyes closed and sunshade on. So he was, he was at rest. I am willing to bet tons of money, even though I don't bet that you will have other people who will want you to do this in the future. We'll be seeing this again. Uh, Luann Jones, go look her up. Covenant Funeral Homes. Look up the story. It is well worth a look. Uh, Luann, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. You're, you're very, very welcome. And I, and I so look forward to hearing from people in their comments. And also um, look out for my up and coming movie called Mile Uprising. Um, people will definitely be intrigued and interested in seeing that as well. I have no doubt, although I don't know that you could top this, but we will keep an eye out for that, Luann. Thanks for the time tonight. Appreciate it. You're most welcome, Scott. Take care. That is uh, that is a first. That is, um, I mean, as I say, I've seen these before, but never in Canada. And um, and I, I, I would love to know, Radley at 900CHML.com, would this be something you would ever consider doing? When, when your time comes, would this ever be something that you would consider doing? Or do you just say, no, no, just put me in the casket. Let's keep it on the down low here. Uh, I'm fine. I don't need to put on a show. I'd love to hear from you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let me bring in Don Robertson, as we do every Monday from 7 till 8, the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and of ComChoice Realty and Dundas's Citizen of the Year not that long ago and soon to be again. And, and... Now, a guy who has come up with an idea we wrote about in the paper today that people are talking about, 
the Dundas Walk of Fame, the idea of having stars under your feet on the sidewalk honoring local Dundasians. Don Robertson, how are you tonight? Good. I could answer that question if you hadn't stopped the music. <laughs> That's right. It makes it way harder when we don't give you the answer. So well, I um, picked up the paper this morning, and yes. I find out that I, I now have to launch this project into a different gear. <laughs> You didn't. You didn't know that it was full speed ahead. Well, with COVID, it's hard with committee work and everything else. But uh, anyway, here we go. We're going to get going. You know, I've had a lot of people today respond and say this is a really cool idea. I've seen a couple people say no, don't do it. But by and large, the the overwhelming percentage of people are saying this is a really neat idea. Where'd it come from? Oh, every once in a while, things get rattling around upstairs and uh, you start thinking about how to how to really, you know, acknowledge in a unique way the special people in our community. And uh, we did it with the uh, Dundas Sports Hall of Fame, pardon me, which is by all accounts been a tremendous uh, success. And, you know, we were talking one night about uh, Russ Jackson uh, Park up on the mountain and recognizing people, if you remember, and that's the first time I spit it out. And then, of course, now I have to scoot off and meet with Councillor Vanderbeek, who's very supportive of all things, you know, fun and, uh, and positive. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly where it came from, Scott, other than I know that there are so many wonderful people in our community that do good work, and they should be recognized. And some of them, some famous people that have grown up in uh, Dundas uh, that people don't know enough about. So, you know, it's not just about famous people and, uh, and community minded people. It's, it's a, it's a bit of a salad of a lot of things, but you know, as we chatted that one night, you've got Dave Thomas, you've got Ian Thomas. Now I'm told that Martin Short went to high school in Dundas. Um, you know, now that, now that you've, uh, had that wonderful story today, it was nice. Thank you. Um, that gets everybody's mind going, right? So now everybody's probably not feverishly jotting down lists, but it creates and stimulates conversation. And I think a lot of good things can come out of it. Uh, got some really creative ideas for Memorial Square that needs, uh, some sprucing up. And I think there's uh, talk to a guy, there's a way to, to do a bit of a sidewalk and, and leave some areas that you can just pop out this section and pop in a new star. And so it could be a lot of fun. It's very creative. I know other people of, uh, you know, I, there was some talk in Hamilton about needing one and having one. And I'd like to get a little further along, but it is what it is. And so we don't just want to talk about it. We want to do it. We want to recognize people. And, and, uh, I think, uh, with the local support and how the community of Dundas operate, it uh, has great chance for success and prosperity. I, I think it's a terrific idea. By the way, a couple suggestions. There were others that I got today, but uh, that I didn't even realize one of them. Uh, Donald Knight, who was a figure skater, someone suggested him. Tom Charrington, someone said, lived in Dundas for a long time. There's another good one. Um, you know, the thing is, and I really hope of all the things that, I hope it works for Dundas just because, but... I also hope that if it does work for Dundas and if you guys make this go, that this will be the 
impetus for the broader city of Hamilton to say, we can do something like this. Cause you know, Hamilton has the gallery of distinction, which is wonderful. The, 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 I don't want to say the problem, the challenge with the gallery of distinction is unless you go into the art gallery where it is located now, I think that's where it's located now, you're never going to come across it. And so to put something out in the public square, not literally the public square, but you know what I mean in the, in, in the eyes of the public. So you are going to come across it, whether you want to or not, I think is a great idea, which is why I love something like this. It's why I like the idea of naming some parks after people or schools or buildings when they name the Bernie Custis school or uh, Harry Howell arena. Th- these are great things. And largely when you and I have talked, they have been for athletes I don't think that they have to just be for athletes. I think we've got, we're, Don, put it this way. We are fantastic at naming something for politicians within moments of those people retiring or passing away. We seem to be a lot slower at doing the same thing for other people. I, I, I love the idea and I hope it would inspire Hamilton as, as a whole to do something like this. Well, it should. And, and, uh, and I have no interest in running anything in Hamilton. The city are very, capable uh there's a number of capable people but the forecourt at city hall would be a rather unique location that would be a uh, great spot big hamilton sign there and uh one of the first guys i'd put in there um i don't know how good of an athlete he was but ron joyce kind of made hamilton famous with tim hortons well off the <laughs> top of your head charitable words dave Braley. Uh, yeah yeah off the top of your head anybody listening right now you and i and everybody listening could I'll set the bar very low could come up easily with five people that absolutely should have something like that. And I guarantee you that our five people are not going to overlap that by the time, if we were to put out the list, we would have 50 in about five seconds. And, you know, I know that counselor Marula at one point suggested something for Martin short and Eugene Levy. I don't know why we don't have that already. Um, There's a, a guy we've had on the show before who does a cable show Cadillac bill who suggested that we should have something for Florence Lawrence that very few people know about, but she was the first female Hollywood star ever. And she was from Hamilton and we have nothing like you go on and on down the list. It's a great idea. And, and, and the best part, and Arlene Vanderbeek said this because it's such a good idea, almost certainly you could find corporations or people willing to donate. So this doesn't have to be a drain on tax dollars. I, no, I don't. I, no, no, it, sh- it shouldn't be a city um, initiative in my mind, although it should be in city property. And uh, that might be the challenge because sometimes there are people out there that the, feel that the city of Hamilton can grind the absolute greatest idea to a halt like no one else. And that would be some of my fear is that, you know, if we're going to, have to redesign Memorial um, Square in Dundas. I mean, I could get some contractors together and we could do it in probably six or seven days. Um, how long it would take to do the studies and everything else in the environment we live in now, I'm not 100% sure. But <laughs> if, 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 um, city, if city council decided that's something they wanted, they certainly have the capability of fast-tracking it and getting it all done. And... Uh, so you're right. So we'll we'll see how this moves along. Um, and you're right about Hamilton. I mean, you got Foxcroft, you've got <coughs> Nora H- Henderson. You've, I mean, there. It's a million. There's there a million are, of them. 
there's, there's a yeah, million. Uh, and as for as for how long this would not take, a million, but it's close. Well, and as for how long this would take, um, how long was J.L. Greitmeyer <laughs> under construction? I leave. I'll leave that uh, there. Uh, there you go. Um, <laughs> let me tell you this: it, pro- it probably took longer to renovate than build. Oh, I am sure it did. I'm sure, and that's because the point. Is made, you know, the, yeah, you're right. This, um, let me get to something. And by the way, congratulations on that. And I do hope that it comes together, and I do hope it works, and I do hope it is a great example and spawns other things. Mike Weir won on the weekend, and first time since 2007 he's won anything uh, in golf. And I, you know, it's great. Everyone loves Mike Weir. Everyone's happy that Mike Weir wins. It's on the Champions Tour, and just wondering, do you care? I mean, we care that it's Mike Weir, but does it? Do you care at all about the Champions Tour? Are you interested in watching old timer golf or no? Well, yes, I am, and and I'll tell you why. It's because that I've said before, I don't mind watching the LPGA because I can read. Well, I can't anymore, but used to be able to relate to how far they hit the ball and how they could play the game. And it's kind of the same with the champions tour, right? I mean, it's, it's more regular, regular golfers, you know, uh, 15 handicappers, 10 handicappers can relate because you're not hitting the ball 340 yards. I mean, the, uh, the holes are shorter. It's far more in perspective and attainable to an average golf guy. So yeah, I watch it. I don't. I don't mind it a bit. I was talking Oddly to someone enough, today. I, I took the took the weekend off and didn't see where wins. So well, I, I mean, I was talking to someone today, and one of the other things about the old timers tour, or the Champions Tour, but it's a, the old timers tour, is that you know, as you get older, your body doesn't move in the same way that it does when you're 25 years old. Flexibility and stuff. Watch the the old guys tee off doing the ceremonial tee off at the Masters. I mean, even <laughs> Jack Nicholas, one of the most beautiful swings ever. He's, you know, he doesn't swing like he did when he was competing. The body just does not let you do that anymore. And as you get older, as you say, it becomes a little more like, oh, that kind of looks a little more like me. The results aren't the same, but that kind of looks more like my swing than, you know, Rory McIlroy or Dustin Johnson or, you know, whoever. And, and so as far as, you know, familiarity or at least believing that you could maybe play there. Yeah. I, I think you're onto something. Yeah. What about the, I mean, does it, does it remove any of the excitement though, that it's, and I'll say only, uh, and I'll say it with respect, although it probably doesn't sound respectful. Does it, does it remove the, the achievement for Mike Weir that it's only on the champions tour, not on the PGA tour? Well, it's basically the only tour he can compete on right now. He can't compete on the, uh, on the big tour. Right, he's not. Uh, he's not. He's just not capable of playing at that kind of golf. But here's how I look at uh, the Champions uh, Tournament and um, the regular PGA. It's kind of like being able to be entertained by two types of Netflix shows, or watching yeah. a document documentary and watching a comedy. And not to compare anything to a comedy, but you can, you know, you, you can certainly enjoy more things than just one and i think that's that's what championship golf is like it's a nice break from reality it's tremendous golf i mean you know we can't play with any of those guys so it's you're right at how good it is so i you know i i think and it's the same as the uh it's the same as the lpga 
I mean, I can enjoy watching that. Is there a comparison at all, Don? Is there a comparison at all to the idea of I can still watch the Rolling Stones now that they are in their 70s and still appreciate what they do, even though what they do may not be quite as vigorous as when they were in their 30s or 40s or 50s? Is it similar? I think think that's a very good analogy. I mean, uh, but uh, other than the basically, if you close your eyes, the sound to me seems the same. Now, whether it's enhanced electronically or not, but, you know, when, uh, when, when the boys get up on stage, it sounds an awful lot like it did the original time through. So I don't know if they're electronically getting enhanced, but sure, it's a very, very good analogy. Uh, you may be the first person in the last 50 years to refer to them as the boys, <laughs> but nonetheless, I think uh, Keith Richards, uh, the last time, or Mick Jagger, the last time they were called a boy was uh, was a few <laughs> years back. But uh, I get the point. You know, if if the uh, when you watch old watch movies with older, more mature women referring to themselves as girls, I guess you can call the Rolling Stones boys. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, I don't know about you, but last week I found myself as I as I do most years, it seems against. My intentions, I sat down and watched a good chunk of the NFL draft. I'm not entirely sure why I watched so much of the draft. It is a bunch of people showing clips of players and talking about men's names and selecting men's names. By definition, it should be terrible. And yet somehow they've turned it into an interesting hours and hours and hours of TV. Don't know if you watched any of it or not. No. Okay, you're the smart one. Nonetheless, it got me thinking as I'm watching this. Now, maybe it's my age, but this would fit perfectly for you. If you could go back in time so that your body was at peak athletic prime and you had the choice, would you want to play a sport now or would you want to be on the building side of building a team and being a general manager doing that side of the sport now, if you could only choose one, what would you do? I'd probably want to play a sport. Um, you know, I had aspirations to refereeing at the highest level and being on the athletic side of it, being forced to the sidelines and being on management. But that kind of goes hand in hand, Scott, because I don't think you have enough perspective to be on the management side and build a team without having played the game. It's a, it's a tough thing to do. You don't, you don't have to have played it at the highest level, but I think an understanding of what the athletes have to go through to play. And uh, so I don't know if you can do one without the other, but uh, with analytics and everything involved, I, I don't know. They've taken more of the emotion out of the game, I think, than, than there was before. I'm not saying the guys don't try hard. I don't think, not saying they don't care, but you know, somebody slashes you on the wrist or in the back of the leg, you're supposed to take it. Now that was never part of it. So I think there's less emotion. So maybe it would be easier for a non-participant to be a builder, but I still think I'd rather have been an athlete. And in my case, uh, uh, in my prime, it would have been the referee. Not play. Well, either way, but even so, I mean, I, here's the thing. I mean, there was so much uh, fantasy football now or fantasy baseball or fantasy hockey or whatever else. I think there's been an awful lot of people who 
have discovered, even though, look, the, the reality is because you build a, a team that wins your fantasy league in the NFL league doesn't mean that you have the skills to become an NFL general manager. Uh, a lot of people are confused by that. They think that, hey, I won my league two years in a row. I think the Bills should be in touch with me. Nonetheless, I think it's it's opened a lot of people's eyes or opened their they didn't realize that they liked doing this kind of thing that they liked the idea of building a team almost as much as they did playing the sport yeah i i i don't disagree with that but and you're right it's an age thing right like my my options are limited now and and for the most part everybody's options are limited there there are not an awful lot of elite guys that can go on and play it at the level that they'd like to play i mean every kid playing hockey in Hamilton, minor hockey in Hamilton, wants to play in the NHL. Well, you and I both know the odds of that are, they're not slim and none, but they're close. Uh, that's true. And in fact, I had a, uh, a kid once when I was coaching, I was, you know, coaching when they were very young. And I said, you know, you are not going to be playing in the NHL. So just, you know, like, let's just relax. And I told the parents that too. And of course, one of the kids went on to play in the NHL. So, you know, proven wrong. Nonetheless, my point was generally accurate that if you were to go down the list of every kid playing minor hockey in Hamilton right now, the number of kids, the percentage of kids that will even play a professional game of any level of professional is minuscule. And so, you know, if, if that's the reason you're in it, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, and and and... <laughs> One thing, one thing about uh, pro sports now, for sure, the management teams are huge. There's analytics guys, there's assistant for this, assistant for that, you know. Um, I don't know how many assistants Dubik's got or people answering to them, but it's not an insignificant list. So the opportunities are great. Mike, Mike Dixon uh, has a pretty good job uh, in the Leaf Management Department. John's son, an old buddy of mine, he, he works with the Leafs. He used to work for the Panthers. Went to Brock University at the uh, for the sports management side of it, so there are a lot more opportunities now than there used to be. Yeah, and and you know it, it would be we we do think of general managing or building a team like the old days of Punch Imlac or something where you're the guy and you can make all the trades and nobody says anything. And you're right. I mean, it's it is a very different world, but we don't think that. That's not what we're talking about when we think about this. If you think about the idea of managing a team, we think of that. We don't think of salary cap and this and that and the other and all the complications. And, and you know, if it was that, again, if you could ever go back to that, I think there's an awful lot of people who, again, have had some experience now, experience in air quotes, experience building their fantasy team, whatever else, who would say, you know, if I had to quit, if I could quit and do this per, like for, as the Leafs general manager or the Canadiens general manager or be a player, I think I would quit. I think I would do that. I think there's a lot of people who have discovered they really like that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's well, there's, and there's so many more opportunities now, right? <clears throat> you referred to Punch Imlock. There were six teams and six American League teams. <clears throat> and now look at the opportunities. So you're right. I think it can enter people's minds more frequently now because of the expanded opportunity that's out there. And uh, you're right. When Punch Imlach was coach and general manager with no assistant coaches, he must go into, he must have went into his office and talked to himself, <clears throat> which I find can be quite successful. I've done that a lot. Well, six, six teams, six NHL teams, 
as you say, with no real assistance. So there's really six positions at, at one time. And now you're right. There are, well, once, once Seattle comes aboard, there'll be 32 teams. And I bet each team has 15 to 20 people in the front office, not counting scouts. I mean, you, you do the math. It's, it's, it is a very, very different world. But anyway, I, I also think we forget the further away we move from our playing days, how much fun the playing was and why we like sports in the first place. Yeah, and it's easy to kind of forget because, you know, I, I don't, you know, basketball now I'm, I'm okay. I'll watch basketball. I loved basketball when I was playing basketball, loved it. And, you know, you kind of forget that you put a few years between your glory days, however glorious or inglorious they were, but you put a few years between that and you kind of start to forget a little bit about why you loved it. Well, you, you do. And, um, it's, I think, I think it's acceptable. I mean, I think that's just the way it has to be, but I think that's also why there are so many, um, church basketball leagues. That's why there's so much old timers hockey Yep. because yep. people enjoy the sport, keep playing it. I mean, you've done stories on guys that are like in their eighties, seventies, eighties playing hockey and they're still playing and they're still playing twice a week. And there there's uh, Mark Juris's father used to play in old timers or seniors, uh, uh, soccer. I remember t- chatting with him one night at a game and he'd played three games on a Saturday. He played with the over 40, over 50 and over 60. I said, you're a pretty good athlete. If you could do that, especially when you get, you're old enough to play in the over 60. So, so there's a guy that just loved the sport. Well, like, there was a like guy there, play hockey. <laughs> there was a guy that I wish I could think of his name. We got to go to a break here. There was a guy I wish I could think of his name who I wrote about probably ten years ago. Who at the time was eighty years old. He had one eye, and he was still playing net once a week in a men's league game that uh, Dave Anderchuk's dad was still playing in. And this guy, I mean, his pads were. Honestly, they were from, they were from before Pops Kineski made the, <laughs> invented the goalie pad. I mean, this guy's equipment was so old, but he was out there once a week, could barely stand up. If he went down, he was a stand-up goalie by necessity because if he went down, he needed help from his teammates <laughs> to get back up. But he, you know, he was still there. Every week he was out there playing. And I remember writing about him and thinking this is, you know, pretty remarkable. Again, with no depth perception and no flexibility and no ability to go down or get up, but he did not want to give it up. So it's there, it's there. If it's in you, uh, there are people who are still absolutely loving it and not wanting, but as I say, I'm, I'm, if, if I could go to the old school of being able to just be a GM, like once upon a time and make all the decisions myself and not have to answer to a board and ownership group and assistants and everything else and chairman, uh, I might choose that now. I might choose that now. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me ask you this, Don. We've got a few minutes left here. Um, a little bit of a shocking thing moved across Twitter today. Shocking maybe an overstatement, but the Columbus Blue Jackets posted their starting lineup for tonight's game. And when you looked at their lineup, starting on their fourth line this evening, so in other words, barely relevant to the game, we'll see minimal action and is playing with essentially the scrubs. Patrick Line. The guy who was the second overall pick behind Austin Matthews just a few years ago, who was a prolific scorer with the Winnipeg Jets for a while, has now been traded to Columbus, has just pooched out, and is now on the fourth line. 
Who do you, I mean, who do you blame something like this on? Do you blame it on the coach that doesn't like John Tortorella is his coach there and he seems to hate him. Do you blame it on the coach for squeezing any joy of the game out of a guy like that? Or do you blame line a himself and just say, no, you just got to do better and maybe you'll get some playing time. Well, there's a, there's a whole, there's, we don't have enough time for me to answer all the potential questions mixed into that. So Lime uh, obviously didn't work out in Winnipeg the way it had been. And when you start seeing elite players, you know, uh, Taylor Hall and some of the other ones moving around, you start getting a little suspect as to why, because there's no chance Austin Matthews is moving around or Mitch Marner. So <clears throat> there's always more to the story than we get. And, uh, but Tortorella is a demanding guy and, you know, he's had some success. It's just, I'm not, I'm not sure it always works, but I can tell you, I know some people in the game that say glowing things about his character and his personality. Now, nobody you have a line a or Tortorella? Tortorella. Okay. And, uh, just as a person, now they didn't comment on his coaching tactics, which may speak volumes. But as a person, he's a good guy. So from that aspect, I don't think he's out to personally ruin anybody, but he is a demanding coach. And sometimes today's athletes don't react well to that type of coaching. So the combination of a couple things, that and the fact that Winnipeg got rid of an elite player, there has to be some message in that. So I don't know, but it's a sad day when you see somebody that's, really has been elite in the game and probably could be elite again on the fourth line. It's embarrassing. And it may be a message from Tortorella to his general manager saying, why'd you make this trade? Okay. So that's for getting fired. That's the next question though, Don. So Columbus right now is one of the worst teams in the NHL. They're behind Detroit and Detroit, as everyone knows, finished dead last by a mile last year. They're not making the playoffs. There's zero chance they're making the playoffs. Is this not, if you are the general manager of the team and you have made it clear, you want to sign Patrick Lyonet, who's going to be a free agent after this year, I believe uh, you want to sign him to stick around. Are you not telling your coach, can you maybe not turn this guy off our organization so thoroughly that there is zero chance that he'll stick around and I get zero in return for the trade I made. Could you maybe knowing we're not going anywhere, just play the guy and make him happy. And then next year when it's a fresh slate, you can do all the coaching you want to do, but can you not try and ruin our relationship here? Well, it's, it, it, I don't think you have to be a hockey genius to understand that if Tortorella is going to be the coach there next year, there's a better chance for signing you than Lime. Like he's not going back there. If Tortorella is still the coach. And if Tortorella is not going to be the coach, that's maybe one of your selling features. But if that's all that being said, if you want Lime back and you're not going to have Tortorella back, then get rid of Tortorella and bring some in that'll play Lime 23 minutes a night. Right? There's a lot going on in that question. Yeah. I, I If I'm the GM, now you're, you're stuck in a, in a spot here because if I'm the GM and I've made this trade and I've given up a good player, although he hasn't been great in Winnipeg, but I'm giving up, I've given up a good player and it was a big splashy trade and it hasn't worked so far and I'm out of contention now. So this is free time. This, this is Don, this is what used to drive me nuts. 
I loved Ron Lancaster as a human being when he was coach of the Ticats. He was a wonderful man. He was a legend. I would, I, I, I enjoyed the time spent talking with him when I would get that opportunity, but it used to drive me nuts when the Ticats were way out of the playoff race and he would continue to play Danny McManus all game when Danny McManus was slowing down and was getting near the end. And he would never use that opportunity to try and see what his backup quarterbacks could be. So you don't know if you've got a guy in house who might be able to play or not. And it all, it drove me nuts because you're wasting opportunity that's been gifted to you. And I see that here with Line. It's gifted time because nothing matters now. Play him and see if he can turn it on. Well, I to chat about Ron Lancaster. Ron Lancaster was an old school coach, a wonderful guy. Um, had more than a couple glasses of tea with him over the years when he was in Hamilton. But he's, he was a loyal guy and didn't want to embarrass his starting quarterbacks. Maybe that happened to Lancaster at the end of his career, and he swore, I'm never doing that to any of my veteran guys. They're my guys, and I'm going to play them. We'll figure out who can play next year. I don't know. You know, obviously, never talked to him about it and can't now. But that might be the mindset from an old old school coach, I think. Uh, I think you could see a guy like Pat Quinn being like that, a guy like Pat Burns being like that. Maybe God bless them both, but um, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what the theory is. I. I. I but if, if you're if you're not bringing Tortorella back, then it, your only chance to keep uh, the new kid is to change coaches and let him play now, because he's sure. I. I wouldn't be lining up to sign a contract if I'm him. No, 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 no. He's not going to be there again. He's going to be. He'll have to take a small deal and go. He'll play somewhere with a superstar player and have a big year, and then uh, maybe revitalize his career, but mm, yeah, we'll see. Maybe, maybe he'll line up alongside Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner next year. Who knows? Play on a minimum contract. Uh, Don Robertson, we got to run. We got to run, but I, I would encourage people to go read the piece in the spec and not because it was mine, but because it's about Don and about the uh, Dundas walk of fame. It's a, it's a good uh, idea. I would encourage people to read that. Uh, Don always appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks Scott. Very much. I enjoyed it. And thanks for the story. It stimulated a lot of conversation. Excellent stuff. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.